I'm pleased to welcome Audio-Technica back as presenting partner for Season 5 of Let's Talk About Sects. Audio-Technica's support has allowed this podcast to continue to grow, and their equipment is a huge reason why it sounds great. 60 years ago, Hideo Matsushita established Audio-Technica in a small flat in Shinjuku, Tokyo. Today, you can experience his legacy with affordable audio equipment to help with working from home, content creation, and if you're like me, getting the best out of your vinyl collection. Find out more at audio-technica.com and use promo code LTAS10 if you're in Australia to get a discount and support this show. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Children of God is one of the most notorious cults when it comes to child sexual abuse. Founder David Berg taught his followers, also known as the family, that women should make themselves sexually available to men, and his beliefs later extended into encouraging sexual exploration with minors. They resulted in an abusive culture which allowed predatory behaviour to flourish. You can listen to the two-part episode about this cult in the Let's Talk About Sects back catalogue. Daniela Mastanek young was born into the Children of God, as was her mother before her. She left as a teenager and put herself through school and university, then decided to join the military. Her fantastic book, Uncultured, explores many of the parallels between the cult and the armed forces. The New York Times called it a painful and propulsive memoir delivered in the honest tones of a woman who didn't always think that she'd lived to tell her story. Welcome to Let's Talk About Sects, a podcast about cults around the world. I'm your host, Sarah Steele. Before we get into this episode, a content warning. This podcast deals with issues that some people may find disturbing related to trauma, emotional abuse, and controlling behaviours. This episode also includes mentions of rape, child sexual abuse, and suicide. Please use your discretion as to whether this will be suitable for you and those around you who may be listening too. Daniela Mastanek young was born a third-generation member of the Children of God and grew up being trafficked around the world. She escaped at the age of 15 and went on to graduate as college valedictorian before commissioning into the US Army as an intelligence officer. Daniela deployed twice to Afghanistan and became a member of one of the Army's first female engagement teams, an experiment that eventually led to the repeal of the combat ban for women. She's a recipient of the Presidential Volunteer Service Award presented to her by President Barack Obama and is about to graduate Harvard with a Master of Arts in Organisational Psychology. As you can tell, this is a life story worthy of a book, and she's written a fantastic one. It's called Uncultured, and it's just been released in Australia this week. Here's what Dr. Yanya Lalich had to say about it. 
This book is a must-read that exposes the rampant and horrifying abuse of children raised in cults, and the unimaginable strength and courage of those children, like Daniela, who get out and survive and eventually thrive. With clarity, honesty, and heartfelt emotion, she educates us not only about cults, but also about the similarities of coercive control in some of our most respected social institutions. I was so pleased to be able to talk to Daniela about Uncultured. Daniela Mastanek-Young, thank you so much for joining me today. I have read your fantastic book, Uncultured. It was quite a read. I think anyone would get a lot out of it. It sounds pretty dark as a topic, growing up in the cult of the children of God and then kind of a lot of the darker side of being in the army, being a woman in the army as well. But I also think it's not a a really heavy book in a lot of ways. There's a lot of inspiration in there and, and positivity as well. Yeah, thank you. That's something we tried really hard for because, you know, I knew that I wanted to take readers to these dark places because the book is really trying to show this concept that humans will do almost anything to fit into their groups. And as I was studying organizational psychology, I came across this concept and I said, oh, I can show this in the sex cult and I can show this in the military. And, you know, there, there is a lot of trauma in the book, right? There's a lot of trauma, there's a lot of triggers, but each thing is there. It's specific. It's kind of to show a part of the development or, you know, to, to really show like you need to see how bad a sex cult gets and that 10,000 people went along with it for 50 years. And you kind of need to see how bad the military culture gets for, you know, the Daughters of America when we disappear behind the high commune walls of the Department of Defense. But I think, you know, I'm, I don't know, I'm a, I'm a happy, bubbly person. And I think we, we tried to write it with a page turner, you know, almost fiction quality, since it is a story that has everything from murder-suicide to cults to war. And yeah, I think it's a it's a good read with a good ending and hopefully some insights that makes everybody question their groups as well. Mm, it's definitely a page turner. And I think you really succeeded in that. The first part of the book is told through your eyes as a child and is written so engagingly. It really humanizes the experience of being a part of the children of God, to understand it as a child born into the environment and never knowing anything else, which I think a lot of people don't really understand when they only ever engage with the sensational aspects of the group. And it made me think of Beyond Belief by Jenna Miscavige-Hill, which I know you've also read, and she writes about growing up in Scientology. I wondered if you could tell me a bit about how you went back into a child's frame of mind to give that illuminating perspective. Yeah. So, you know, the first thing I wanted to say is that I wanted to do it this way on purpose because I think as an adult, when we get programmed by a cult or programmed by the military or programmed by society, we sort of, we buy into it in certain ways. There are things our adult mind does, puts aside, Let's cognitive dissonance grow for comfort. But as a child, that is all you know. You're born in this world and it's just presented to you in this way. And I wanted readers to have that experience because there are so many books we read about cults, but it's almost always we're looking at it from this like, who would do this? Who would join perspective? 
And for me, being a third generation, right, it's like my mom was born in it, I was born in it. So I really wanted to show how this was, in some ways, a normal life to us, because that was what we knew. As far as going back there, man, it's even hard to say this, but like, I have a I have a daughter who was, you know, four and five years old when I was writing Uncultured. And so it was extremely triggering. But, you know, I sometimes feel like I didn't get a childhood in many ways because we grew up in these lines, in this organization, in this institution. But now I am kind of you know, guiding someone else through childhood, experiencing it vicariously through her naturally getting triggered quite a lot. And I think a lot of that emotion that I was able to put into the character comes from, well, having good help writing, but also, yeah, having a having a daughter and kind of living through my experiences from the other side as I was writing the book. And it was super, super hard. Yeah, I can totally I can totally imagine how having your own child would make you think about the things that you were experiencing at that age and how how you would not want that for her as well. But you also write so beautifully about your mother's experiences and show how she tried to look out for you the best that she could within an environment that made it really difficult for family relationships to properly flourish. How much of her story were you aware of while you were growing up and how much did you find out about later? So I was aware of most of her story, but it was always told to me from a perspective of the true believer who had never questioned anything. So for example, when my mom was 13, she was sent off to the prophet's home where they had what they called a teen training camp. And I knew growing up that there was this marriage ceremony where they were all symbolically married to Jesus through the prophet. And I was told outright that there was never any sexual contact because this was the part of the time when we were denying that. And later I found out that, of course, there was sexual contact with all the girls involved, the youngest of whom was three years old, you know, three to to 14 years old. So, you know, I was, I was aware of most of it. I wasn't aware that my father was a 40-year-old man when he impregnated my 14-year-old mother. I thought that, like, it was open knowledge in the group, but they forgot to tell me after the age of, like, two. And so she had been then married off to another teenage boy. And so I thought he was my father. And that came as a huge sort of identity crisis for me, which is, is shown in the book. But you know, it was around several things, just, of course, the normal, right? I'm not who I thought I was, specifically being part Mexican. <laughs> and also, I immediately knew, even though I was only 12 years old, and even though we had always been taught that basically there was no such thing as rape, because sex done in love was always supposed to be God's will, I immediately knew that's wrong. This is rape. This shouldn't have happened. So, yeah, I, I think I was like, I was always aware of my mom's story and kind of churning different parts over it in my head. And it wasn't till I was a teenager, and I had already left the organization. And she and I started talking about some things, I think she was starting to have her doubts. And I asked her to, you know, really, let's go through your life day one to 
to now. And we had a good discussion about that. I think in many ways, the fact that my mom was born and raised in the children of God is what allowed me to write this book because I, you know, I understand that she wasn't any more at fault for it than I was. And so I can explore all of these things, including the relationship between the second generation and the third generation, which is, is very complicated. And I hope I did it well. Yes, absolutely. And I, yeah, I know what you mean because I've spoken to so many people who, I guess people who had joined a group and then had children and the guilt that they feel over that situation. And then some of those children who have a quite a hard time grappling with the the forgiveness of their parent for kind of putting them through that. It's such a difficult thing to navigate. So I can see how her also having been born in allows some of that to be a little bit easier. H- having some people you felt you could rely on and who believed in you sounds like it was a bit of a life support during this time. And uh, a couple of examples are Auntie Jade, who w- was able to show you kindness and Auntie Patty, who saw your academic abilities. Yet neither of them was able to protect you from awful punishments or educational dead ends. I wondered if you could share a bit about what these kinds of figures meant to you. Yeah, you know, I I think I was born just an atheist, a skeptic, always questioning. I really like logic. You know, so one of the moments in Uncultured is when my mom teaches me to read when I'm three years old and then tells me that books are amazing because this is where we get ideas, but then books are banned. And so that doesn't make logical sense to me. And, you know, so I don't describe myself so much as a cult survivor as just like I was a prisoner with those people for almost 16 years. And one of the reasons I think maybe the programming didn't work as well on me is because I was that kid who was hard to control. I was that kid who was always in trouble. I was that kid that never, never just learned to shut up and go with the program. And as we know, part of breaking people down and building them back up is small acts of kindness. And I feel like sometimes they forgot about me because I was just always being punished and always, always in trouble. So maybe that was a good thing that it made the brainwashing not work, but definitely having, you know, having these people in your life, I think is what kept me alive. I think, you know, so many children of God survivors report suicidal ideation starting at three and four years old. And so that's, that's horribly tragic, but it's also the age where remembering your teacher who likes you can make you not want to kill yourself that day. So there's definitely, you know, they, they are special people in my life and I still think of them as, as some of the good ones, but I don't think, and I think I say this in the book that it's very, very hard to create structural change in an organization from within, especially if you're not in power. And I even, you know, I labored under this idea that my mom never knew about the sexual abuse that I suffered as a child. I don't think she did. But I always thought that if I had been able to tell her, she would have done something. And it wasn't until writing this book and talking about it with, you know, other people helping me out that 
one of them said to me, you know, could she have, right? Could my 20-year-old mother have done anything in that situation to have protected me against, you know, one of my abusers was one of the most famous, rich, famous in the outside world musician. And I and I don't think because of the structure of that group that any one of these adults could have done very much to have protected us children. And that's why I think, you know, in some ways, so many of us give so much credit to the people that did a tiny bit, tried to stand in between us and the worst punishments, even though from the outside, it seems like there's so much more they could have done. Yeah, I think it's really, I don't know, almost foolish to believe that there would be a chance of anyone being able to change these groups from within because they're set up to not ever listen to any criticism. The whole purpose is to have absolute power and and not be open to to change like the the word from the top is the final word that's the structure right that is and at the same time and the children of god was very good at this they convince all of their members that they have absolute freedom that the leaders care so much about them that you could speak out at any time but as you mentioned, that's never actually the case. It's never, it's very similar to when in the army, when the commander says, I have an open door policy. Come talk to me about anything that happens. Mm. <laughs> I really liked my commander. I still never went and told him about any of the, you know, sexual harassment issues that were going on with me in the military. Mm-hmm. I, of course, would recommend that all listeners read your book to understand more about your story. But I wondered if you could briefly explain to our audience how you came to leave the children of God. So my, I always say it started on September 11th, 2001. I was 14 years old. We had just come to America, which was a very shocking thing for me because we believed America was evil. We called America Babylon the whore. And even though we knew we were many of us were American, that was like, the evil place we'd had to leave. So we're back in America and everything seems really nice in America and I'm pretty surprised and I'm loving it. And then 9-11 happens. It's the first time I've seen live television on in my life and I'm watching this horrible destruction and people dying and I'm hearing the adults around me saying this is God's judgment and praising God and like this was my moment of cognitive dissonance when the newscasters in front of me say the words religious extremism term I've not heard before. I realized right there, like, Oh, I think we're religious extremists too. And that, and just general unhappiness of the life I'd grew up in just started me. I need to get out of here I need to get out of here now and I need to get out of here before I turn 16 because at 16, you're considered a full adult who is supposed to have sex with everyone and anyone and who's not supposed to use birth control. And I did not want to get stuck in a cult with children. So I I started this campaign to make myself trouble, more trouble than I'd ever been before. And I say, you know, if you break small rules, or if they think they can save you, they try hard to save you. And exorcisms are not a lot of fun. So I knew I needed to sort of break the worst rules. So this is how I come to be 15 years old in Mexico, climbing over the wall of a commune to literally go have sex with an outside boy that I liked 
because that was like the worst sin I could commit. And at that point, it was sort of like, well, you're excommunicated. And my parents had the choice to come with me or to find me a place to stay. And so that's how I ended up in Texas with a stepsister that I'd met three times who was about 10 years older than me, who just also left the cult herself. And, you know, my first day of school was not even 16 years old in a, in a school with 4,000 students. So that was my that was my break. That was uh, the world I was coming into. I mean, what a, and what a huge shock. The aftermath of your leaving sounds so incredibly difficult where you're basically on your own working to earn money to survive while still going to school and then trying to figure out what to do with your future. You, you write about finding it really challenging when people asked about your childhood and not knowing what to say. And then even later on in the military, you still had to pick and choose what and when you told people about your past. For listeners who might want to respond better to someone who may have had similar experiences, what advice would you give about the best ways to make someone feel like they're not some kind of weirdo with this kind of story? Yeah, it's so hard, you know, because one of the things cults do is they teach you that the outside world is evil and out to get you and that you'll never fit and you don't belong there. And I think I really absorbed that message. And so, and almost all of us, when we leave the cult, we are just trying to pass. Like we're just trying to pass as normal American kids, normal Australian kids, wherever we end up. But it's basically impossible, right? You can't just show up in a world you've never been a part of and try to act normal. So, you know, it's hard for other people because I think unless the person tells you, you know, I came from a call, I came from this religious abuse, it's hard to respond properly. But I, I just think one of the main things is to just be open-minded, realize that, you know, this is good advice for everyone, right? But not everybody is exactly what they look like. So I am blonde and bubbly and everyone thinks I look like the girl next door, And so when I say I'm a cult survivor, I get told, oh, you don't seem like a cult survivor. And then it's, you know, this process of you're like, yep, but I am. What my best friend did that worked for me was she didn't treat me like I was weird. And when I knew, when I didn't know something, you know, it can be a very American thing to be like, oh my God, you've never seen friends or, oh my God, you've never experienced X. And like, we know, we know we've been deprived of all of that cultural experience. And that is kind of very embarrassing for us. So anyone that just sort of has the grace to know that we're not going to know things, know that like, if you know someone who grew up in a cult or, or a really closed off religious group, like they might look like a 25 year old or 30 year old adult, but there are some basic, basic things about life that they don't even understand. And people that are just willing to accept us for who we are and help us understand things, those are the people that end up being able to help us out the most and like, you know, become our friends and family on the outside, I think. Yeah, that totally makes sense. And I think a lot of us would have had conversations with people who are cult survivors without ever having realized that that was the case because they wouldn't have said so. So I think it's worth keeping those things in mind at all times. You know, one of the things I would say is that 
the first rule of cults is you're never in a cult. So often cult survivors don't know that they're cult survivors for quite a chunk of time. In, in my book, I didn't know for the first two years. I knew I'd left the family. I knew I was on my own. I lost everything I grew up with, but I didn't realize, oh, it actually was a cult. And so, you know, almost 20 years later, when this book comes out, I've had friends from, you know, sort of high school, college age asked me like, oh, so you, you lied to us about your background when I said, you know, I was a missionary and X and it's, it's one of those things again, that's so hard to explain because it's like, well, I wasn't lying. I was saying the most honest thing possible that would get you to ask the least questions because I didn't even know how to talk about it myself. Mm. So I think, you know, that's another thing is like when you do make friends with people that start coming out to you about these kind of religious traumas or, or coercive traumas, just to know that like they didn't, they haven't changed drastically. They weren't maliciously lying to you back then. They were just trying to navigate how to talk about these things. For sure. And then moving on to your time in the military, you draw a lot of parallels between the cult and the armed forces. I want to read a couple of quotes from your book that really hit me. The first one is, take a bunch of young adults from all over the country, throw them together in isolation but without privacy, control their food and elimination habits, add sleep deprivation and march them for long distances until their minds are as exhausted as their bodies. While chanting things like, when my right foot hits the ground, all I hear is that killing sound. I mean, the way you put it, it just clearly sounds so culty. You also mentioned how in the US Army, soldiers can be moved around at will, which happens all the time in cults. And you write about how when you were deployed, there was a ban on having sex, which of course, cults control people's sexual lives all the time, whether it's through purity expectations or quite the opposite, as was the case with the children of God. Another quote I loved was, well, I didn't love it. Another quote from your book is, I was once again immersed in a world where predators not only survived but thrived, where they were rewarded for the very qualities that made them good predators. So there are so many parallels, which, again, people should read your book to learn more about. But my question is, do you think in this line of work there can be better ways of creating cohesion and discipline, or is the very fact that you're expected to follow orders and put your life on the line always going to get in the way of a healthy environment? Oof, that's a good question. So I want to start by saying, you know, when I started first telling my stories, people used to say to me, okay, well, the cult is obviously evil, which it's never obvious. And they would say, but the U.S. Army, that's a wonderful organization. And I think that is problematic, right? I think the U.S. Army is 1.3 million humans trained to kill other human beings. That is what we do. We literally walk into boardrooms and say, we're not in the business of hearts and butterflies. We're in the business of killing people. And so this entire deification of the military and the cult of the veteran that we have built in America, I think is problematic. And it's especially problematic because we don't pay attention to the programming, right? Like, yes, the military has to program people, but yes, we should also be talking about it. Yes, we should also be aware of what is going on. And I think you know, it's, it's very telling 
even, you know, with the book, I get some readers saying, you know, what did she expect? She knew the military was full of dangerous men. And it, you know, that gives me pause because if you ask the average American, they would not say the military is full of dangerous men that are going to rape our daughters. They would say the military is full of wonderful heroes who are committed to loyalty and honor and duty. And that becomes the problem, right? The deification of the military makes it so that nobody can criticize, so that nobody can ask for help, so that when the institution does fail, the most important thing is protecting the institution. And I think we see that in you know, all kinds of religious abuses too. And that is pretty much the same thing in the military. I do think that in order to have a successful military, you have to have a high control organization. And in a high control organization, individuality is always going to be problematic. So that's the military's job to deal with. But even in these kind of questions, when we start digging into them, people will say something like, well, we're always going to have war. And I'm like, are we sure? Because there's some studies that I really like that suggest that when women are much more in power, like maybe we won't have as much war. So, you know, part of my work and part of what I'm trying to get people to think about is always those, you know, in a cult, we would call them thought stopping cliches, but those things, right? Like, thank you for your service. The military is a wonderful organization. We're always going to have war. And actually thinking about those things and actually talking about like, you know, the military exists to program individuals to conduct violence on behalf of state. And as long as we need to do that, we are going to need to keep having people in the military. But we should be talking about what we're doing and, and how we're using group behavior and being a lot more deliberate about it. Yeah. And just having that structure shouldn't mean that as a woman in that organization, someone should be able to say to you, you are going to get raped as happened to you. And exactly, right. And and that's exactly the kind of harm that happens because, you know, and, and so many of us women would say this when we were deployed, we would tell another male soldier how scared we were. And they would say, oh, from the Afghans or from the, the third country nationals. And it was like, no, from you guys, right? Because if, I'm somewhere near an Afghan, everyone's going to be watching my back. But if I'm with 25 American soldiers, as you see in the book, I'm sent out on patrol as the only woman, and I'm warned to watch my back against the 25 men I'm going out with. And none of us, even me at the time, kind of really stops to think about, like, why are we afraid of that? And that's one thing I really wanted to bring out, because when you say the words, the military has a problem with rape culture, you get attacked. I can't get op-eds talking about this published anywhere. But if you show it, right, when men who were deployed from 2009 to 2014 read that story, they know that if it was their woman out there, they would have been scared for her. And that's rape culture. Yeah, yeah. It was, it, it's a really shocking moment in the book when I, I think it was, was it your superior who said that to you? Like that bluntly? 
It was, yes. So I had, I worked for three captains. Of course, one of them was the senior. So the most senior captain was the one that gives me, right before we deploy, he gives me an article and he says, here, you're going to want to know this. And the article was just all the statistics you've ever heard about how many women are getting raped in while they're deployed to Afghanistan and Iraq. And then my, the second in command captain was the one that told me, you know, he said, Daniela, I used to think it was so silly that women were so scared to come over here. But now that I'm here, I think that you probably will be raped on this deployment. And I would say that was the beginning of a lot of triggers for me and a lot of, you know, these parallels of where, like, I was expecting familiarity because in the Children of God, we were God's army. The prophet was from the military. He patterned a lot of his stuff on the military, but I wasn't expecting this parallel of, you know, I'm 23 years old. I've run so hard away from my past. I've fought so hard. Here I am a lieutenant in the army and I'm back on another compound with high walls that I can't leave where the odds of me being sexually assaulted are incredibly high and, and did turn out of course, to happen to me, along with most of the women, I feel, that have served our nation. Mm, it's, yeah, it's incredibly shocking. And maybe it shouldn't be so shocking because maybe people should be talking about it more, but it it did seem very much like incredible that someone could say that to you, but nobody seemed to be doing anything about figuring out why these men were doing this and stopping the, stopping that from happening. And And let me say what you said about the because we're not talking about it. Right. And I think that is so key. And I think this, you know, we talked about this in in high control organizations where the mission is so important, the organization is so important that you as an individual are never supposed to make it about you. And this is one of the reasons why the military, like medical care gets demonized, just like in cults. And this is another reason I think that when women raise their hand and say, I was assaulted. Like you're seen as why were you causing trouble, not why do we have these rapists in the military? And then, of course, it's seen as, you know, you chose to be here. It was your fault. Like, what could you do better instead of just how do we protect all of our soldiers? And, you know, of course, when it comes to, as you mentioned, telling people not to have sex. And I still, I mean, I've never once spoken to a civilian that is not just flabbergasted that they just tell adults not to have sex for a whole year. And one, they think that's going to work. And two, they don't realize just exactly how dangerous they made it for every single woman. And we're only about 5% of the population on that base. And all of a sudden, your life just got so incredibly dangerous. Yeah. And I want to say briefly as well, for those who are going to read the book and find this out, but those who haven't yet, if anyone was going to be able to figure out how to avoid that by basically being as good as, if not better than many of the men around her, it sounds like it was you, like you were incredible. You did very well while you were there. I mean, your running, your running just comes across as like smashing all these guys in their, in their kind of own territory. I think you, you reached a point where you said you tried to measure up all the time and then you still end up being representing all women if something goes wrong, right? Right. And, you know, 
the, the, there's basics of stereotype theory here at work. And that is that basically if your demographic is less than 20% of a given population, then you're not even beginning to affect subconscious stereotypes, right? So women are not at 20% in the military yet. And, you know, my husband and I used to joke all the time, like if he does something wrong, then Tom Young is messed up. But if I do something wrong, this is why women shouldn't be in the military. And while we are talking about, we have a population that is trained to violence. And then we had the combat ban when I was serving, which said women couldn't be in combat, which literally was legalized segregation and discrimination in the military. I'm very proud of being a part of getting that taken down. But, you know, I could see even back then, like how directly the combat ban saying that women are less than to a population of people trained to violence is a huge part of what made it so dangerous for us. And, you know, I'm coming from, of course, a world where you have to be perfect in order to matter in a cult. And so I joined the military and I know that I'm worth as much as any man. And I know that I can do war and, and bring things to the table, as is always the case on a with a population that's not being allowed to do something. And so I really, I mean, I think I internalized the misogyny a lot because I really thought like if I could do it, if I could prove to them that women were good enough, then like that would change something in their minds. But really all it did was, you know, tell people like, oh, well, 99% of the women aren't good enough. You know, Captain Mestinek is not really a woman, I used to hear all the time. And then still, you know, one of the things I really wanted to show with the book is that, like, I will talk to men about my experiences, and they will say, oh, I'm so sorry you went through that. But you know, the women I served with, they were so professional and so good, and they never had any issues, you know, as though I weren't. But, and I've just started to say, like, have you asked them? Like, have you asked them? And I've had several men go back and just have to come back to me and say, Daniela, I'm so sorry. Like, they told me that they experienced every bit of what you went through. And we just, we don't talk about it. So I'm sorry this is so long, but that's one of the reasons I wanted to write this book was to open the eyes of the good men that are there standing next to us that just don't see it, right? Because privilege is when you just don't have to see something because it doesn't affect you. And I wanted the Tom Youngs of the world to be able to see it while they're still in uniform and be able to make that change. Mm. And you're saying all of this as a proud military vet, right? This is not something you're saying as someone who is trying to crap all over the military. <laughs> Absolutely. I think one of the reasons I was able to write this book is because I'm a proud daughter of the 101st Division, because I got an award from the president, because I was one of the first women in deliberate ground combat, and because... I experienced all these things together, right? So I, you know, in the book, famously, there's this quote in the military where we are told that women in the army are either a bitch, a slut, or a dyke. And I, you know, take you through all of my phases of sort of trying to succeed as all of these things. And now I just say, no, thank you. I choose all three, right? Like, you don't get to tell me that I don't get to be a proud veteran 
if I'm being critical. And actually, one of the things that I found as I was doing my graduate work on groups was that women in the military fit every definition of an oppressed class, which means that no matter how proud we are of our service, we also bear trauma from that service, from trying to just operate every day in a total control environment that is not made for you, right? It is so traumatic, even if you didn't have experiences as sort of obviously wrong as mine. And so, you know, I I really hope that this can help other women start to speak out and can help, you know, culture only changes in the military when civilian America cares and forces the military to change. So this is, you know, we can't do much usually to help children in cults, but there's a lot we can do to change the culture for women in the military. Absolutely. You also write about American exceptionalism, and I'm going to quote again from your book here. The programming begins at birth. America is the greatest country on earth. We're the best down with the rest. And if we have to torture a thousand innocent people to prove it, so be it. When you believe you're the best, the chosen ones, then the end can always be made to justify the means. It's the exact same attitude that we see in cults all the time, the us and them mentality. And with the number of people in the USA who don't travel internationally either, there's a real isolationism that happens as well. You chose to be intentional about not buying into this. And I was wondering, do you think you managed to escape some of that attitude as a result of your childhood in a weird way? Absolutely. You know, it's funny because I sometimes I describe American exceptionalism as the girl that was told she was the prettiest girl in the world by her daddy when she was little. And then she grows up and she still believes it. And so the rest of us like have a hard time hanging out with her, you know, because I grew up as an American in Brazil being taught that America was evil, right? Like I had in some ways, the opposite programming of most Americans. I was taught cops were dangerous and out to get me, for example. And then I, you know, moved to America and I'm taught a different thing by living here as as a white woman. You know, I have friends from South America that constantly ask me why Americans worship their military so much when I was in the military. And so, like, I was thinking about that Yeah, I think just from like growing up so internationally, I mean, my friends are all colors of the rainbow. My favorite food does not come from America. It's pretty much impossible to convince me that America is the best country in the world because I've experienced a lot of the world. And I think the important thing about that is you don't have to think your country is the best country in the world to love your country or to serve in your military. Just like you don't have to agree with the wars you fight in order to be good at doing your job. And I think that my criticism of America is what allowed me to be a pretty good intelligence officer and actually get in the heads of the people trying to kill Americans because, you know, to most people, they they don't see them as human. And I understand that if somebody threatened to kill your child, like you would probably be out there doing this as well. Yeah, yeah, totally makes sense. 
I have a chapter in my book about cultic behaviours across society and you see them in multi-level marketing and in lots of different business setups, particularly when they're based around a charismatic founder who doesn't want to hear any criticisms. I'm sure we can all think of some current pertinent examples. And this is a big point that you make in your book as well. Do you think that cult behaviour is essentially maladaptive human behaviour and something that we have to be constantly vigilant in looking out for? Oh my God, yes. This is one of my favorite things to talk about because I studied organizational psychology, which I feel like is where you go to study the good groups. And if you want to study bad groups, you're supposed to go into sociology, where we study society's problems. And I famously requested Harvard to let me add their psychology of cults class to my program. And they said no, because it's not enough about groups. And so I think this is fascinating. I think that people don't think of cults as successful groups. People think of cults as failed groups. And just like people think of cult members as dumb people, you know, so I always like to say a Harvard educated lawyer died at the Branch Davidian standoff in Waco. And the children of God made millions and millions and millions of dollars all around the world for 50 years with like 100,000 employees, essentially, throughout that time. So very successful organization. And I think, and you know, I think I say this at the end of Uncultured, that in a similar way that most individuals are very, very similar, and it's that 1% of difference that causes all of our issues, well, most groups are fundamentally probably 90 to 95%, 99% the same. And cults do a lot of things right. Cults do a lot of things that entrepreneurs and CEOs all over the world wish they could have in their populations, which is commitment, which is community, mission, focus, all of that stuff, right? And so I absolutely think that there's so much of the negative and the positives of cults that we see in organizations today. And part of what I want people to take away from uncultured, the lesson that I had to learn was that I'm not as different as all of you. And the lesson I want everyone to learn is that whatever group you're in, it's not that different from the sex cult that traffic children. If you really understand how groups work and then how sort of toxic and coercive control grows up within it. So I always sort of joke that my goal is that readers will read this book. And once you're shocked by the comparison of sex cult with the US military, you'll walk into every group you're ever in and ask yourself, is this a cult? And by the way, if you don't laugh, that's the first sign. Yeah, absolutely. And I think having, you know, studied cults for a few years now in my in my spare time, just for fun, I just, I see those behaviors all the time, all around me. And it becomes really obvious that they exist in so many places. So I, I agree with you entirely. And so can I give for listeners like two of my tricks? So because I think like anything can become an idea cult. Cults are about isolation and about not giving you free brain space and about getting your labor. And so if you understand that and you understand like any group can become toxic like that, you can start looking at your groups through the lens of, how much time am I giving this group versus how much free time I have per week? Because if you're giving any group 
let's say like outside of your work, your whatever your work hours are, like if you're giving any group too much of your free time, you're not, it doesn't mean the group is toxic, but it means you're likely not going to be able to see when the logic breaks down and it starts becoming toxic. So just looking at how much of your free time is devoted to one topic or one group. And then the second thing is just asking yourself, what are the exit costs, right? If I were to leave this group right now, what is it going to cost me? And that's not just money. That can be loss of community and that can be loss of sort of losing face, right? And if those two are your biggest fears, that probably means the group that you're in is is somewhat toxic. Yeah, I think those are really great, great pointers. I wanted to ask you a bit of a selfish question on my part, which is about recording your audiobook, because even as a podcaster who writes some pretty long scripts and records them in hours long sessions, I found recording my own audiobook incredibly taxing. And I only have a couple of slightly traumatic personal experiences in mine. How did you find that process? I found it to be extremely traumatic. I I knew I had to record the audiobook because I didn't think I was going to find a voice actor anywhere that knew cult language, army language, Brazilian Portuguese, Mexican Spanish with a gringa accent and who could say first lieutenant Daniela Mestinec without missing a beat. So I was like, all right, I got to do it myself. And I'm a huge audiobook listener. So I know that, you know, connecting with the author is important. I thought mostly about how physically hard it was going to be. And it, it is more of a physical workout than you think. But I did not lose my voice. I learned that I can definitely talk for seven hours a day. No problem. My husband jokes that he did not just learn that. I think when you're writing it, you go in and you go into your emotions for a little bit and then you come out. And then when you're doing all your proofreading and everything, you're kind of very not emotionally connected. But when you're reading the book, you cannot zone out. And so that was, I think, the hardest thing for me. And readers have noted that I describe disassociation quite well in the book that's because I am used to just leaving my body when things get too hard. And it was a very difficult, definitely interesting, but difficult experience, for example, to be sitting locked in a recording studio, reading a chapter about being locked in a recording studio as a child, being abused, and I could feel myself I guess for someone who's trying to work on their trauma, it was probably good and bad because I had to stay in the moment and I had to stay focused. And so I was able to sort of notice a lot of things about trauma triggers and and feel where I go into PTSD and also feel like surprised sometimes at where the emotion came in my voice, things I thought I had gotten over that I certainly haven't. So that was all an intense experience and had an amazing director. You know, I think if you're going to do a book like this, like you have to have a director who gets the book. And so I was very lucky with that as well as with my editor, but I will never record an audio book again in five days. I will definitely ask for two weeks next time. Yeah. I think it's like, yeah, I just can't even imagine from that perspective because just reading every single word. I think that's the thing that's difficult to understand is you've read over it so many times. You've done the edits, you've done the proofing. It's gone through legal, depending on your book. But when you do the audiobook, you have to then read every single word. You can't 
just skip over any of it or just maybe briefly read through it and skim over it. It's like every single word. I was literally celebrating every, I think reading my audiobook was probably the 70th time I went through this book. And so at the end of each chapter, I'd be like, okay, well, I never have to read that chapter again. <laughs> and I would get so excited. Um, and also, I, uh, you know, the funny thing about recording an audiobook is like voice actor you can get really mad at writer you. For example, I've learned I sometimes need to use more simpler sentences. And maybe I need to not just yank your heart out at the end of every single chapter. <laughs> that, that was hard. Uh, we had to take a lot of breaks. But, you know, again, I'm I'm glad I did it. I think that it opens up the audience because I think a lot of men that would not pick up, you know, the book with a baby in armor on the cover will listen to the audio. And, hey, the New York Times recommended it. So, you know, I can't be too mad. As they should. Before I go on to let everyone know how to get your book, can, can you tell us anything about what's next for you? Yeah. So I am doing absolutely nothing until January. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. I am starting to work on a second book called The Culting of America, and it's going to be less story and more, you know, talking about how programming and just high control communities work and how we've seen this in cults and in the military. And then honestly, how I think that features that have made up cults for as long as cults have existed are have started to become some of the primary features in our groups and our politics and our country today. And I mean, throughout the world, but definitely in America. So that's my next big project. And I'm a I'm an organizational behavior speaker. I will graduate from Harvard at my 20th anniversary of leaving the cult, actually. And uh, yeah, I, I talk about organizational behavior as it relates to cults, and I talk about cult scholarship as it relates to regular organizations. And I think it's in a way that lets people realize some things that they haven't seen before or, or ways to look at their group that they haven't looked at before. So if anyone wants like a speaker who's like really going to blow the roof off with something you've never heard about before and hopefully get your boss to be a little bit less toxic, you should definitely call my people. I can think of so many past jobs that could have used that talk. <laughs> I almost think, you know, I almost think they need to bring me in when they've already fired the charismatic turn toxic CEO. And then we work on like building the culture up deliberately from scratch and selecting for not a cult leader because so many, you know, it is funny because so many of the qualities that we worship for our, especially male company leaders in America are just, they're just straight up cult leader qualities. And it's interesting for me because all of these things we're seeing on the news now, I'm like, I was calling, I was calling those guys toxic leaders five years ago, and you all were still writing, you know, business stories about them. So I, I think there's also a part of America that's decided that if you're making money, you're a good guy. And that is something much deeper in our culture that we're going to need to figure out. 
Mm, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Although we are we are seeing more of these groups kind of more of these organizations sort of collapse and the leader exiting and, and, and talking about the toxicity that happened, all the documentaries coming on Netflix and kind of dramatizations of, you know, WeWork and Theranos and all of these organizations. So I can see you've got a, a pretty good uh, potential gap in the market there for trying to rehabilitate some of these spaces as more of them kind of happen. Yeah, you know, the documentary about WeWork is the best documentary about a cult that I've ever seen. I love it so much for that. But I think, you know, and and this is relevant and probably a good place for us to close, is that companies are going to have to start dealing with this. And our latest election really showed this. And as we keep hearing that, like, the military, the U.S. military is at a national recruiting and retention crisis because of all of these reasons that they try to blame it on. No, it's because of the culture. And as Gen Z showed us very clearly in this last election, like they are not joining our military or our organizations and people are leaving and like me finding different routes to work and live because those organizations are so toxic and we're just not going to do it anymore. So I, I really think, you know, culture has always been seen as this kind of fluffy, nice to have you know, you can ask for a business plan and they'll show you one. But if the, you ask for a culture plan, they look at you like you have purple spots on your face. But we're really starting to see more and more like those are the companies that are failing. And like you cannot like the the cult process of motivation and mission and community, it's it works, but it's hacking the human sort of brain and emotion. And it doesn't work well for long and it almost always turns toxic. And so that's really what I want, you know, business leaders and even individuals to just sort of be looking out for as they're building their organizations. And, you know, I wish the military had started revamping their culture 20 years ago, but I think they're, they're going to have to figure it out now. So. Yeah. And maybe just having a bit more care for the individual and having a healthy community rather than just uh, whatever's going to make profit in, in, in terms of some of those companies. Yeah, and that's really what it is, right? And I think we always look at if we care for the individual, then we're not going to have the outcome we want. And I think that's the wrong supposition, right? I think in the beginning of the industrial age, we sort of assumed that in order for a machine to run well, everyone has to be exactly the same, and then it's going to run, and that's going to give us the best operations. And what we see now in the modern world, and we definitely see this in the military, is like, well, maybe everyone being a little bit different creates friction. That friction creates energy, and that energy allows you to do more, right? And this was the whole sort of, you know, we argued for 243 years about whether women could be good enough men to be in battle, and then we realize, like, oh, we don't need them to be men in battle. We need them to be women in battle. Because when men and women are both trying to kill you, it makes sense to have all of this perspective, right? So this is probably a nice circle to where we started, right? Like, we have all of these things that we just assume are obvious. And anything in cults, we call these thought-stopping cliches, right? Boys will be boys. Or you have to be a man to fight war well. And if you just take that thing that everyone assumes and dig into it a little bit more. You usually start like to see new information or where the cracks are in the group. Exactly. Daniela Mestanek-Young, thank you so much for your time today. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for having me.
Uncultured is now available wherever you get your books, and you can head to uncultureyourself.com to find all of the relevant links. It's an incredible read, and I highly recommend it. For the readers in your life, it's out just in time for Christmas. And as Daniela mentioned, there's an audiobook as well that she recorded in her own voice. Be sure to grab a copy. You can access early and ad-free episodes and support the production of this independent podcast via Patreon, patreon.com slash ltaspod, or with a one-off donation or merch purchase. You can also grab a copy of my book, Do As I Say. The link's in the show notes. This episode of Let's Talk About Sects was written and produced by me, Sarah Steele. Music was by Joe Gould. A very special thanks to Daniela Mastanek-Young for speaking with me. Information sources are listed on the episode page at ltaspod.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Thanks again to Audio Technica, presenting partner for Season 5 of Let's Talk About Sects. If you're in the market for some top quality audio equipment, use promo code LTAS10 at audio-technica.com on their Australian store to get a discount and support this show. Their range of headphones and turntables is quite ridiculous, and don't get me started on their mics. Audio Technica, celebrating 60 years of listening. If you've been personally affected by involvement in a cult or would like to support those who have been, you can find support or donate to cult information and family support if you're in Australia via cifs.org.au, and you can find resources outside of Australia with the International Cultic Studies Association via icsahome.com. If you or someone you know is in crisis or needs support right now, please call Lifeline on 13 11 14 in Australia or find your local crisis centre via the International Association for Suicide Prevention website at iasp.info. Thanks for joining me and hope to catch you again next episode.